I notice that the, uh, the more tired I get, the shorter my messages are. My wife's trying to figure out a way to get me good and tired every Sunday morning. No, just kidding. She didn't say that. That's my... It dawned on me uh, today, as I am seeking to uh, introduce you all to, uh, you know, at least my perception of uh, modern Western evangelicalism, that um, since I'm probably not, uh, you know, um, boilerplate OPC myself, that I am, just by observing me and looking at me, it's its own study in terms of what's out there. And uh, that wasn't just an observation I made. It was kind of brought to my attention nicely. And so, you know, you can go to school not just by listening to what I say, but just by observing what I do and maybe uh, certain little mannerisms or things that I just... uh, just kind of flow from me, you know. And, um, and by the way, uh, I'm, I'm more than open to uh, loving, gentle, constructive criticism with a lot of love. <laughs> a lot of love and gentleness, and usually a candy gram and something like the, along those lines. I'd like to read... <clears throat> Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul writes, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you are not able to receive it. And even now you are still not able. For you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? Let us pray. Father God, we do pray that you would instruct us as to the the nature of the Christian and what it means to be a spiritual man. Help us, Father, to have realistic expectations of what it means to believe in Jesus and to be filled by Your Spirit. What what we should look for in ourselves. And we pray, Father, that we would know these things and know them well. That we would be both comforted and challenged. And that we, Father, also might bring the good message to our brothers and sisters in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. What I'd like to do tonight, uh, in my last evening uh, talk, uh, is discuss what has really become the very popular notion of spiritual and carnal Christians. Spiritual and carnal Christians. I have found this concept to be particularly pernicious because it targets the bruised reed and the smoldering flax with uh, what I consider somewhat outlandish promises. So, Bell's just, uh, are we good to go on that? Okay. I had just um, finished a semester at one of the seminaries that I had attended, and I was uh, 
preparing to embark upon my respective ministry with the parachurch organization. It was actually not too far from here, just a few miles from here. We had uh, taken about a, maybe a, a, about a semester of classes, master's units together. And we all lived kind of in this org place together. We all, it was kind of a, you know, it wasn't a commuter situation. And we were all part of the same parachurch organization. They trained us. We'd been all together for about eight weeks or so, maybe longer, maybe three months. And it was kind of an emotional time, and we were all saying our goodbyes, because people were from different parts of the country, and everybody was going into different places. I was, you know, some people were going into Campus Crusade uh, staff ministries on campuses. I was going with Athletes in Action. A friend of mine was actually going to be Bill Bright's personal aide. And we, we had all, all these different places, and there was a good chance that we were never going to see each other again. And I remember one young lady came up to me, and she wished me well. She wished me well. And I responded by saying that I would do my best. With eyes rolling and frustration in her voice, as if I had learned nothing in class, she admonishingly said, Paul, let God do it. Now, to this day, I'm not really sure what that means. Does that mean that I shouldn't do my best? Does it mean that I should do my best at not doing my best? Wouldn't I still be doing my best? Does it mean that I should do my best at letting God do it? But, of course, I'd still be doing my best. Or should I just go away? which is what I did. (laughs) What actually seems to be going on among the vast majority of Christians today is a sort of stratification in the church. Some Christians are among the phylum of those who have made the great discovery, the discovery of the Spirit-filled life. Others are relegated to the lower stratum of carnal Christian. Now, this Christian caste system, I believe, is an unbiblical and unhealthy method of dividing the church between the haves and the have-nots. Now, again, I say this, and I look back on this, and I I feel at a certain level that I was victimized by this for a time. And knowing that I was victimized by it, and I'm quite sure other people are as well. And I think we need to be aware of what's going on out there, because... It is a pernicious little system that's in place. I mean, what Christian would not wish to avail himself of the promise of the power of the Holy Spirit? And since our culture, quite frankly, is laden with remedial Christians, myself included, we become easy targets for those with this great formula whereby which we move up the Christian social order. In um, one of my theological discussions with a friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine in the Foursquare denomination, I made, and I won't get into the issue we were talking about, but I made what I thought was a very compelling point in our discussion, to which he responded, what you need is a blast of the Holy Spirit. To which I responded, I'm more than willing to receive that. 
But just how does one go about making that happen? I guess the real question before us is what should we expect in terms of the power of the Holy Spirit? Is there really a formula or method where the normal, weak, failing Christian can tap into increased energy and become a living and vital Christian? What does it feel like to be a believer in Christ? And what should I expect my life to actually look like as a Christian? I want to begin here by examining what I have found to be the predominant view, a view that I think is a stratifying view, which I think we need to address with our Christian friends, especially the ones who have kind of bought into it. The Spirit-filled life. I, um, I'm going to have to leave out who I'm talking about here. But I knew a lady who was same background as mine in terms of what I'm talking about here. And she had a... Uh, uh, father, who um, was in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, for 60 years, faithful husband, faithful provider, elder in his church, provided for his family, helped, helped the poor, helped the needy, counseled the people in his church, and on and on. But he hadn't really adopted a certain type of Christian lingo and charisma. And her assessment of her father was that he was a carnal Christian. So what does it look like? What would he have to do in order to become the Spirit-filled Christian? Well, the Spirit-filled life and its most popular presentation, I think, can be found in a tract put out by a parachurch organization, which has influenced, let me tell you, tens of millions of people. This is not some small movement. This is huge. It is entitled, Have You Made the Wonderful Discovery of the Spirit-Filled Life? Anybody ever, anybody familiar with that? It's a blue book with a, we used to call it the bird book. It's the blue book with a little Holy Spirit dove on it. Now, the struggling Christian, wallowing in the mire of his own mediocrity and wretchedness, has handed this short, simple tract, which tells him that every day can be, quote, an exciting adventure, end quote. If you know, quote, the reality of being filled with the Holy Spirit and live constantly, moment by moment, under His gracious direction, end quote, you will be transformed from the mundane to something exciting. This, of course, begs the question, why would a carnal person desire the direction of God in the first place? Is not that something that requires the Holy Spirit to begin with? What carnal person wants the direction of God. Isn't the nature of the carnal person that he does what his flesh desires? Nonetheless, what genuine Christian wouldn't wish to live, quote, moment by moment, end quote, under the gracious direction of God? I mean, don't we, wouldn't we all want that? Don't we all want that? Is the fact that I fail to do this relegating me to carnal Christianity? Am I to suppose that the remainder of this tract, this little maybe 16-page tract, will actually yield in me 
such moment-by-moment obedience and acquiescence to God that I can move to the front of the class and have the scarlet sea rend from my garment. That, let me tell you, that's the way I was thinking. That was exactly where I was at. Now, I generally avoid questioning motives. It's not a good argumentation to question motives because you really can't see motives. Just so happened that I dated the niece of the head of this entire organization. I knew him. Very nice guy. Businessman. Good businessman. Owned a chocolate company. But I have a strong suspicion that this track was merely designed to get people within the parachurch organization to be more productive. To obtain the prestige that comes with being the higher level Christian. Now, keep in mind, friends, that it's not a matter of seeking to be more obedient with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, as Jesus teaches in Mark 12:29. It is actually becoming a Christian of a different kind. You're becoming, it's a second, it's not, it's not your typical charismatic second blessing. That's not what it is. It's a, it's a different kind of Christian, the Spirit-filled Christian. This tract goes on to classify people into three categories. The category, strictly speaking, I think, unjustified by Scripture. There is the natural man, one who has not received Christ. I think this is a uh, legitimate category. This is a person who is not a believer, not a Christian. Secondly, we have the spiritual man. That is one who is directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is the man I think that we all wish to be. He has the mind of Christ and is capable of spiritually appraising all things. His life is, quote, Christ-centered, empowered by the Holy Spirit. He introduces others to Christ, has an effective prayer life, understands God's Word, trusts God, obeys God, and exhibits the fruit of the Spirit. Now, I think at a certain level, we see this person in the Bible as well, at some level, not certainly at some perfect level, but at some level. Finally, there is the carnal man or the carnal Christian. One who has received Christ, but who, quote, lives in defeat because he is trying to live the Christian life in his own strength. End quote. Remember, let God do it. Trying to live the Christian life in his own strength. The carnal Christian is described as, quote, ignorant of his spiritual heritage. He is marked by unbelief, disobedience, loss of love for God and others, poor prayer life, No desire for Bible study, legalistic attitude, impure thoughts, jealousy, guilt, worry, discouragement, critical spirit, frustration, aimlessness, end quote. Now, right about here is where I begin feeling a little schizophrenic. Because I find myself bouncing between the spirit-filled Christian and the carnal Christian moment by moment. But to be classified as a carnal Christian might be pushing this too far. I think it is. Studying the passage used to divide Christians into these categories, I think, might be, prove to be beneficial in order to talk to our frustrated Christian friends who feel like other people are tapping in to some source of power that they're not getting. Let me tell you how much I believe this. Talk about not yielding to the regulative principle. When I first uh, became the pastor of Branch of Hope, I never even heard of the regulative principle. 
So I thought, it was, you know, I thought it would be great to be as innovative as I possibly can. Uh, so I used to do all sorts of crazy stuff. Uh, one time I tried to explain um, the consequences of sin and how devastating it was. So I, I brought a big piece of wood up on the, you know, in the front of the church and I put a bunch of army men on it. And I said, this is what people think sin does. And I started pushing army men over one at a time. Oh, you know, my son got an earring. Oh, you know, my other son got a mohawk. Oh, you know, they went to an R-rated movie. And, uh, you know, we, we think, and I go, this is what sin really does. And I went back and I got this huge hammer and I just smashed the wood and it went flying. An army of women were flying all over the place. And to this day, people remember it. I don't, I don't do that. I, I prob- that is probably a violation, maybe, of the regulative principle. Is it? I don't know. Maybe not. But I used to do stuff like that all the time and, you know. Uh, I won't tell you all of them because I just want to spare you unless you're interested some other time, you know, on the campfire, which I don't think we have. Anyway, um, but this is, this is where I was at with this. And this is very close, by the way, to the way I felt about uh, my story about preaching and being convicted only, you know, because I didn't really believe what I was saying. I was just parroting a commentator. And al- although here... It just didn't dawn on me till later. And here's what I did. I was telling people they need to tap into the Holy Spirit. They need to tap into the power of God. And what I did was I took a big long hose and I tapped it into the hose outside of the uh, school where we were meeting as a church and I brought the hose in and I had a sprayer and I said, you know what, this is connected to the Department of Water. It's, there's an endless supply of water. And well, first I squirted them with a squirt gun, and the squirt gun got empty. And then I picked up the hose, and I said, this will never end. And I squirted everybody in the congregation with a hose. My, I was trying to illustrate tapping into the power of the Holy Spirit. But I didn't really know what I was talking about. I just felt like, you know, I, I, this is what I had heard. And I still have Christian pastor friends of mine who are doing that. And I ask them, what do you think, what does it mean to tap into the power? What is that? What does it look like? What does it produce? How do you do it? And, you know, the closest I ever came was this particular tract. And I looked at the tract, and all really I did as a result of this tract was try harder. That's all I really did do. I really didn't want to be the carnal Christian. I wanted to be the spiritual Christian. You know what I did? I tried harder. It wasn't wasn't anything magic. There wasn't some little spout that God was hiding from me that I had to go find in order to tap into the power. But what about this text? I, I, you know, I um, I haven't really done a lot of exegesis this week. I'm basically kind of not talking about that. I hope none of you were put off by that. Uh, What I do at our church on Sunday mornings is really quite unlike what I do here, you know, because I do exegesis verse by verse. I feel a lot more casual here. I wear a tie at church. I feel like I can be a little more loose here. You know, it's not, it's not the Sabbath, so I can just go crazy. I don't want to be irreverent, but, you know, I want to enjoy and have you. And I, I'll tell you, I, I enjoy uh, speaking. I enjoy, I pretty much enjoy life. I'm a pretty happy guy. Pretty content, pretty happy with my, with my life. And I hope you are too. I mean, I hope that, you know, C.S. Lewis said, joy is serious business, you know, in the mind of God. And you're, we're commanded to be joyful. And we've, people have figured out so many ways to make that not mean what we all know what it means, right? And it's all, I think, a re- just a matter of understanding, you know, the, the power and the sovereignty of God that he withholds no good thing from those who walk in uprightness. And it's not like God is holding back. And it's just a matter of 
finding a contentment with what the lot in life that God has given to us and, and just sit back and enjoy the beauty of it all and enjoy the personalities and all the quirkiness, you know. And my wife wonders sometimes. I'll meet somebody, some uptight, crazy person, and I'll just think it's the most interesting encounter. And she's like, doesn't that frustrate you? I'm like, no. How many guys like that do you meet, you know? Yeah, he's, sure, he's, he's certifiable. Yeah, yes, he, he should be institutionalized, but wasn't that interesting talking to him? But I would like to, and I'm not going to thoroughly exegete this passage, but I would like to take a look at this passage because it's really the only passage in the Bible that is used to classify people these ways. Spiritual, carnal, natural. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I already read a portion of it. And I think what we're going to find in this passage, I'm just going to give you the heads up and in the beginning here, what we're going to find is that the spiritual man is synonymous with being a Christian man. What we're also going to find is that the spiritual man must continually be aware of and repent of carnal thoughts and actions. That's what we're going to find. I'm telling you in the, in the beginning my conclusion. Now, the proof text for these three people, like I said, is this, uh, this passage, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3. Let me read it again. Did I already read it? I did already read it, right? Okay. Let me read it one more time. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, but even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and division among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? All right. Now, at first glance, these categories seem plausible. He tells them they're still carnal, right? But if we we want to speak in terms of categories, and I believe in the present context there are only two, the natural and the spiritual man, let us examine the category in which Paul places his readers by backing up to the end of chapter 2. You understand what I'm going to do here? We've just read three verses in chapter 3. This particular Notion: This particular brand of thinking, this theology, classifies men in three categories. And they use those three verses to do it. Now, let's take a look at the people that Paul is addressing, who he has called carnal. Who this tract calls carnal, the carnal man, okay? Here, here's the carnal man at the end of chapter 2, verses uh, 9 through 16. But as it is written... I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received... Not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. 
Now, let me just review a couple of things we see here. The categories in which Paul's readers are placed, if you will, are people to whom God has revealed great things, verses 9 and 10, through His Spirit. They have received the Spirit who is from God, that they might know the things given to them, verse 12. They have the mind of Christ, verse 16, which is in first person plural in the, in the Greek. It's we have the mind of Christ. So they have the mind of Christ. So do we dare categorize these people as carnal? Is that the carnal person? The person who by the grace of God and by the Spirit of God has come to know these wonderful secrets, these wonderful things, and has the mind of Christ? That's the carnal man? What then do we do What I'm arguing here is the audience in no way can be categorized as some genus of carnal as opposed to spiritual man because of the way the Apostle Paul is addressing them in the first place. But we still have the text of chapter 3. So what do we do with chapter 3, verses 1 through 3? Well, I think that's a muddled and confusing affair because verse 4 is left out of the tract, which states... For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Okay, that's at the end, right, of the first three verses. That's verse 4. When he's saying, are you not carnal? Are you not carnal? Then he says, okay, for when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Alright? I think what we see here is the Apostle Paul addressing a specific behavior. In this case, unnecessary factionalism. Certainly there are times when Christians engage in carnal thoughts and actions. All Christians, and quite often. In this particular case, Paul is addressing a behavior which was prevalent and gaining momentum in the church. But Paul is not putting them in a third category of carnal Christian. He's exhorting spiritual men to acknowledge and repent of a specific carnal practice. I mean, can you see? The, I mean, do you see the difference here? It's one thing to be told to stop gossiping, or to stop being lazy, or to stop bitterly arguing. It's another thing to be told that you need to enter into an entirely different genus of Christian. It's one thing, and I, you know, I hope when we address our kids, sometimes you have to tell your kids, you know, you're, you know that's, that's um, you know, bad behavior. But it's a different thi- it, there's a difference between telling your child that's bad behavior and telling your child he's a bad kid. You know, you, know, you go around, I, mean, I talk about hyper-Calvinism. I had a buddy one time, he's a fairly new Calvinist. He was a pastor also. And he was hardcore very austere, micromanaging kind of guy. And we were on his front talking. And he was just, you know, hard, just bang, bang, you know. Just, I mean, he just didn't seem happy at all. But he was, you know, prophet, you know. You've got to be a prophet, Paul. Don't, you know. I'm like, all right, okay, I'll be a prophet, whatever. And this little girl about two and a half walks up from the neighbor. And she's like, hey, look at my dolly, look at my dolly. And she kind of walks away. And he looks at me and he goes, materialistic, that turns me off. God, lighten up, man. It's one thing to recognize that, you know, I mean, we recognize that we're all totally depraved in a certain sense, but we're not abjectly depraved. And we notice there's good and bad. I mean, even God says good things about people, right? 
Well, you need to say good things about Job, right? An upright man, righteous in all his ways. Nathaniel, an Israelite, in whom there is no guile. I mean, was, was God unaware of total depravity when he was saying those things? No, in a certain sense, we encourage each other when we see good things. We don't tell people, we don't go around when our children behave poorly and go, you're a bad kid. But that doesn't mean we don't address bad behavior. But that's what's happening here. What they're saying is, the way they're interpreting this is, because they had factions in their church, and in doing so, they were behaving in a carnal manner, the maker of this tract has basically convinced tens of millions of people that it's an entirely different type of Christian. When you do that, Paul says, when you say, I am a Paul and I am a Paul, when you do that, are you not being carnal? When you're engaging in that specific activity, are you not being carnal? I'll tell you, friends, it is both dark and disheartening to hold some spiritual carrot before brothers and sisters in the Lord, which promises them, quite frankly, Jedi-like powers as a Christian. Because when they hit the atmosphere, the atmosphere of reality, their hair burns off just like anybody else. Right here. It's just, I just think it's a sad thing. And when I, when I hear that, when I hear these promises made and people thinking that somehow it's just going to kick in and it's gonna be, they're going to be the victorious Christian. The fact is, all Christians have the Spirit of God. If not, they wouldn't believe in Jesus. I mean, the true Jesus of the Bible nor would they seek to obey His law. It is just those things which assure us that we are in Christ. Trust in Him as Savior and Lord. Trust in His Word. Beyond that, I don't think I need... I don't know, maybe I have to tell you this, but I think we need to tell our friends this. Beyond that, you're in the, for the fight of your lives. It's a fight, okay? We talk, we, sometimes we call it a Christian walk, Right? And maybe, I, you know, I'm not going to argue the terms, but it's a war. It's a fight. Let's go back to the real question before us. What should we expect in terms of the power of the Holy Spirit? What should be expected in terms of the power of the Holy Spirit? Is there really a formula or method where the normal, weak, failing Christian can tap into the increased energy and become a living, vital Christian? What does it feel like to be a believer in Jesus? What should I expect my life to actually look like? Well, I think it amounts to this. Good and bad habits are going to come and they're going to go. Contending with being a lustful young man is going to be replaced by contending with being a grumpy old man. You are going to be contending with this all your life. Times of good works and a sense of great intimacy with God, like that of young David, will be followed by seasons of feeling distant and estranged from God, like old David. By the grace of God and by the Spirit of God, you will fight the world, the devil, and your own flesh till God brings you home. The actual weapons of this warfare include things like truth and righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, the word, prayer, watchfulness, perseverance, and, of course, the major arsenal, which we already spoke of, is the preaching, the sacraments, and church discipline. But let me tell you, and I think this needs to be conveyed to our Christian friends, it's a fight. You are in for the fight of your lives. I mean, have you ever been in a fight? I have. 
I'm not advocating it, but my dad was from Brooklyn. He was a prize fighter. That was the first thing I learned how to do. I remember as a four-year-old, him standing me up and going, put your chin, you know, your chin into your shoulder so they can't catch you and telling me how to fight. I remember coming home from school when I was in the fifth grade. And I walked in the house and my dad said, you're fighting Tommy Thomas in the backyard. I go, what? What? My dad had got in an argument with the landlord. Tommy was the landlord's son. I walked in the backyard. There was a big brick wall around it. There were like 30 kids sitting there waiting for the fight. And Tommy's there warming up. It's like my dad was Don King. And, I'm, I'm, and I had to fight Tommy. You know, and I remember as an 11-year-old, I'm, this guy Gordon King and I were, he wanted to fight me. And I'm like, nah, you know, I'm not a fighter. By nature, I'm not a fighter. I'm a lover. And he's like, hey, you know, you wanted to fight? And I'm like, you know, I'm trying to talk my way out of it. I've always been pretty good at that. Hey, we can talk this out, Gordon. Look at it now. And he's doing this, and he's all posturing. And my dad drives by in the car. Hey, you give him a boxing lesson. All right, you know. And so, I had, so, so I've been in it. I know what it feels like, okay? It hurts. It's painful. There's adrenaline. There's disappointment. There's all this stuff that goes on. The Christian faith is a fight. Sometimes you feel like you're winning, and sometimes you feel like you're losing, but don't believe anybody who's telling you there's some secret injection that's going to make it blue skies and green lights all the way to glory. It's just not going to happen. Our friends, they need to hear. They need to hear and be encouraged to know that this battle will continually bring God's people to thirst for His Word and sacrament. That's where the fight brings me. The fight during the week, let me tell you something. I mean, if you're really honest about your own sin, you know, when you walk into church on Sunday morning, if you're going to make an honest evaluation of your own sin, that fight and how well you've done is it brings you to your knees before Christ, His Word, His His sacraments, His grace, and His mercy. That's where it brings us. They need to hear the bad news, good news. The bad news is that they will never be a victorious Christian in the way this, that this is defined in this particular paradigm. The bad news is that these particular church stratifiers which promised them this, uh, this higher level of Christianity by their man-made laws and recipes, that's not going to happen. The bad news is, like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Solomon and Paul and Peter and Timothy et al., they will ever be at odds with their own weakness Lethargy, ignorance, and sinfulness. That's the bad news. The good news is that they are at odds with their own weakness, lethargy, ignorance, and sinfulness. The good news is that they do not immerse themselves in their own depraved nature. The good news is that by the grace of God, they have not resigned themselves to abject carnality. The good news is they are fighting. But over and above this, The good news is the gospel. The good news is the loaf and the cup. The good news is the battle is the Lord's. The good news is though we are weak, He is strong. The good news is that He made Him who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And may this, friends, above all other things, be the comfort of evangelicalism. Let us pray. Father God, help us to recognize the glorious thing that has taken place in our own lives. Help us, Father, to appreciate that the fact that we find ourselves 
believing in Jesus, that we find ourselves, Father, at odds with our own nature, with, with the devil and with the world, is truly a sign that the Spirit of God is upon us, revealing to us great things and, and truly causing us to walk in Your ways. We pray, Father, for ourselves that we would never trust in our own strength, our own efforts, to somehow be right before the living God, but that we would ever trust in Jesus and Him alone. But help us, Father, also not to be lazy and not to look for some secret recipe for power. Help us, Father, to be well-armed and to fight the fight. And may we, Father, be wise in delivering this news to our Christian brothers and sisters in all love and humility. Through Christ we pray. Amen.